0: Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and over the past 12 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes, at www.ecre.org. We are recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice and certainly encourage all of you to practice good social distancing to help limit the spread of COVID. Today's episode is part of ECRI's ongoing response to the COVID 19 pandemic. In fact, it's a little bit of a special episode. Just before the end of 2020, we held a remote meeting for ECRI staff to talk about the COVID vaccines and answer some questions from our staff. Why? Well, our staff are people seeking information and making decisions about the vaccine for themselves and for their family members. And we wanted to make sure that they went into the holidays with the best information they could from their colleagues who have been following the developments most closely. Now in late January, 2021, we're tapping into some of those same colleagues to answer questions that came from our staff. And we thought it'd be a great opportunity to share that follow-up with the smart healthcare safety audience as well. So to get us started, I'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves.
1: Uh, Hi, Paul. My name is Marcus Lynch. I'm the Assistant Manager of Horizon Scanning at ECRI.
2: And good morning. My name is Alfredo penso Mendes, and I am Senior Research Analyst with our Clinical Evidence Assessment Team.
0: So welcome to you both. Um, Marcus, I think this first question we're going to start with you. You know, as of right now, we've got two vaccines given emergency use authorization here in the U.S. They're from Pfizer and Moderna, and they both require two shots. And that second shot is required to come three or four weeks after the first one, depending on the vaccine. So the question we got from a few different staff members is, why do we need that second shot?
1: Well, that's a good question, Paul. Uh, Basically, the first time that your body sees... um, any type of thing that would make you sick, like a virus or a bacteria, your body responds with um, what's called the innate immune response with cells and different proteins. And then eventually over a few days, like in about a week, your body makes antibodies against that virus, like, uh, like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes uh, COVID. So um, it usually makes two different types of proteins, uh, two types of antibodies, IgM and IgG. And what happens is, is the second time that your body sees that again, it makes a much stronger, like an exponentially stronger immune response of I, only IgG antibodies. And so what happens is, is that allows your body to very clearly uh, clear something like it says, oh, I, I really need to remember this now. And it, it makes a really much stronger response. So you want to do that in the context of vaccination you're trying to expose your body to it not once but twice so that you have like a really strong immune response set up to SARS-CoV-2 when uh, your body might be exposed to it in nature. And um, so yeah, through that process of seeing it twice, you get educated memory B cells in place. So that's why a lot of vaccines need two doses, obviously, some many vaccines that are in current clinical practice even require three because of, uh, you know, to, to keep it strong and, and uh, high enough to protect people over time. So and, and this is kind of like the phenomenon, maybe people have heard that sort of statement that you don't catch the same cold twice. It's kind of like, because mm-hmm. you catch it and you start to make the response second time you see it, your, your body kind of jumps into place quicker. So you're trying to get it up and running by the time you actually see it
0: do we know what the consequences are if that second shot isn't received either on time or or maybe not even at all?
2: Yes. Well, the, the consequence would be that the vaccine, that you may not be immunized, you may not be protected with the virus. Uh, the booster has two roles. First, uh, to strengthen the immune response, to make the vaccine more effective, but also to as, as you just said, uh, Marcus, to help differentiate those memory cells so that the response is durable. Um, that doesn't mean that a single shot may not work in some people, but there is also the broader consideration of, is this number gonna be high enough so that the vaccine helps provide effective epidemiologic control? Uh, the FDA and the World Health Organization both agreed that a vaccine should be at least 50% effective uh, to help us get the epidemic under control. And the preliminary numbers from the Moderna and Pfizer trials showed that um, a single shot can provide immunity for up to two months to 50 to 80% of people. The great unknown though, is how long that immunity is gonna last. So, a single shot may not last, may not provide immunity that lasts as long as the complete course. So, if that number dips, it's a 50% for Moderna, for example, dips further because uh, people got only one shot, then the vaccine may not be useful over the long term to help reduce COVID 19 cases in, in significant numbers and to reduce transmission enough so that we can one day go back to normal.
1: And and we're seeing preliminary evidence that suggests that the vaccines are maybe, like if you only get one dose, they're maybe between 33 to 52% effective. So that's kind of, I mean, that's still uh, an evolving story, but that's what we're starting to see.
0: And if those numbers are the numbers, that's not enough, is sort of the short way of saying that, I think.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely could fall below the 50% effectiveness. And also there's questions about, how long even that effectiveness is going to last, which, you know, that it's going to take a little while for us to figure out if to follow, maybe people who never get a second dose, um, you know, how that's holding up six months or a year from now is, is, is another concern, but yeah, it's, it's definitely supporting the fact that everyone should be getting two doses and it's not um, a moot point or like being over, um, you know, over concerned. Okay.
0: We had a lot of questions uh, from our staff about allergies and whether they are a contraindication to vaccination um, so first, can we clarify what kind of allergies we're talking about in the context of you know the vaccination? Um, you know I get personally your classic like itchy eyes and congestion when there's a lot of pollen.
1: Is that what we're talking about here? No, so um yeah this you know I guess really to get into maybe the really, the really short answer of the of the vaccines, essentially, you know, uh, CDC recommends that everyone get vaccinated unless they have a specific allergy to the vaccine or the vaccines components. So that's kind of like the bottom line is if you don't if you're not allergic to the it didn't have a bad response to that specific vaccine or a component such as um what's called polyethylene glycol is a component of the vaccines that's been implicated in causing allergies then um you should get vaccinated um what the cdc has recommended is the normal observation time for people to see if they get an allergic response is about 15 minutes and in a lot of people who fall into those high-risk groups of maybe having a allergy to other vaccinations, having serious immune responses, people who have been um, hospitalized due to allergic reactions. Then the recommendation is generally that those people be watched for 30 minutes. So, but they're not uh, discouraging anyone from being vaccinated unless they've been um, unless they've specifically had a response to polyethylene glycol or the vaccines, and um, And actually your hay fever type of, um, to get a little bit more now into the, for the people who, (laughs) the science, um, people who are really interested in the science, there's another antibody type called IgE right? So we talked about IgM, which is the first time you see something IgM and IgG are made. And when you get a vaccine, you want to make more IgG. But then there's another thing in this process called class switching that you make IgE. And that's typically involved in your classical allergies, like allergies to like cat hair, asthma, um, the itchy eye kind of thing. And so that's not really implicated. What people think these vaccines or the, the, the um, allergies to the current vaccines for COVID it's an IgM mediated response to the polyethylene glycol, which then trips off a protein cascade called complement. And so it's a whole different pathway. And it's so that's kind of like the science of like why CDC is not saying let's, you know, like that, that typical allergies are not a concern. With that being said, um, people who, uh, they did ask if I'm taking allergy shots, should I wait, you know, waiting type of concerns, um, you should, definitely be in contact with your physician and your allergist to see if you, you know, should wait after a specific allergy regimen that you're on and, and just see if after a certain treatment, should you wait before you get a COVID vaccine? But in general, you know, people who have allergies shouldn't uh, be concerned at this point that they might get an allergic response to the, to the vaccine. It's actually a different mechanism, they believe.
0: What do we know so far about the, the frequency, the severity of those severe allergic reactions to the vaccine, whether it's, you know whether it's in the initial studies that led to the emergency use authorization or whether it's during the, the early days of the rollout so far?
2: Uh, well, there is two aspects to that question. Uh, first of all, did they look? Uh, well, of course, they tracked adverse events, including allergic reactions. However, people who had a history of severe allergic reactions. And by that, I mean, people who need to carry an EpiPen because of a severe peanut allergy or uh, allergy to these things, Uh, the kind of reaction that can kill you, essentially. Uh, Those people were not included in the studies. Um, So it's hard to get an accurate estimate uh, taking that into account. However, among people who were in the trials, and some of them may have had underlying allergies that they were not aware of, uh, the overall number was very, very, very low. There were a few okay. cases that were reported and very uh, prominent in the media uh, when the vaccines were initially rolled out in the UK. However, people need to take into account that what the denominator uh, for uh To calculate uh, a risk, uh, uh, was in those uh, during those first days of the rollout. So it's uh, a few cases, but out of 50 or 60,000 people that received the shot during those first few days. So, on the whole, the risk is not zero, but it's very, very, very low.
0: And, you know, I think we'll say this a few times throughout the course of today's recording a lot of all, all of this is very much in motion, right? So I sort of mentioned, right, we're recording this in late January 21. Um, it's very much in motion. Where can we send people? Where can we direct people to be able to say, if you want to keep up to date about what we know about the vaccine rollout, for instance, or about you know the, what are the current contraindications and so on from a trusted source, where can we send people?
2: Uh, well, the FDA and the CDC websites are a great place to start. Uh, they have okay. information that is uh, laid out for uh, lay people. Uh, they have also links to deeper resources, uh, and uh, our own web WIC- eCRI website is also uh, a good place to look at.
0: So I think what we'll do is, in the um, you know in the notes for the recording here, we'll make sure that we include um, a link to at least sort of the high-level FDA and CDC pages, so that folks who want to click through can can have a starting point, and then they can explore. On their own from there.
2: Yes. Um, one more um, suggestion uh, it's also to check with your state uh, health departments because uh, vaccine rollouts, uh, prioritization dates uh, are being uh, determined at the state level. And uh, our own website here in Philadelphia has great information.
0: So, you know, there's been some discussion about unblinding the participants in those studies, uh, the initial studies for the vaccines that were used again to obtain the initial authorizations, the emergency use authorizations for the vaccines. So let's start with, um, can you define what unblinding means? Um, and what are the the conversations either for or against doing that? And, what is, and if we know it, what's the current status wh- whether a decision has been made and acted on yet?
2: Well, um, the gold standard for uh, approving drugs and and vaccines also is uh, a randomized controlled trial. And these are blinded, meaning that people don't know what they got, if they got a placebo shot or the real vaccine. And this is very important because knowing what treatment you got may change your behavior. People, for example, if they get the vaccine, they might feel, you know, protected and more likely to expose themselves to risk, for example, and that can change the results. It can introduce bias. Uh, it's relatively common in trials though, that once the, um, a statistically significant effect has been shown that we have a certainty that uh, there is an effect, uh, that the trial is unblinded, that the patients are revealed what they got and that they are allowed to, those who were in the placebo arm are allowed to go and get the active treatment. Uh, this is called crossover and it's often done out of an ethic concern. Uh, knowing that, uh, especially for long trials, knowing, knowingly keeping people with a placebo treatment, it's... Uh, not always considered ethical, uh, especially if we have enough data to reach a conclusion for the trial. On the other hand, uh, there is a, uh, the downside of of doing this is that you lose one of the study arms. And uh, a major issue with the uh, COVID vaccine trials is that we have good quality data blinded trial data at up to two months follow-up average. So, people got the two shots and then they were followed for two months to see if they got COVID or not. Uh, But that time is actually quite short uh, considering also that immunity can decrease over time. So, having uh, six-month data, for example, uh, with uh, Blinded data, I mean, would really be ideal. So there are voices, uh, some have argued that uh, to get that high quality data, we should continue uh, the trial as designed, as a blinded trial for up to six months. Uh, so those are the two conflicting visions. Uh, as of right now, uh, Moderna and Pfizer have both submitted, uh, drafted, sorry. Um, plans for unblinding and crossover that they intend to submit to FDA. They require FDA authorization to do the unblinding and the crossover. If they don't get that authorization, then they might endanger full approval of the vaccines. Right now, the vaccines are rolled out Mm. under a provisional authorization, emergency authorization, sorry, emergency use authorization EUA, but to get the full approval for years and years to come, the biologic license application, they need um, to submit full data under a protocol approved by FDA. And of course, all modifications to the original protocol, they need to be approved by FDA as well.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, I think kind of tagging on to that. So, I mean, basically, when these trials were set up, they're set up to run for, I believe, about two yes. years. Um, And so we were looking at, you know, we're going to stop this, not stop the study, but at certain time points, look at the efficacy. And again, like, for instance, at about two months, they looked at the study and said, does this work enough for EUA authorization so that we can start to get this out to at least priority populations? And so, but again, like Alfredo said, the BLA, the full BLA, which most, you know, your typical vaccine is used for approval or your typical drug biologic, they, they get a, B, a BLA when you're not in times of emergency. And, um, you know, originally it was at the end of those trials, maybe these two-year trials was the BLA. And now with these issues with the crossover and unblinding, um, and saying like, can, will people continue to really run this trial as it was designated? Now it's really the issue is kind of like at six months, is that enough to actually get this full BLA? So that's kind of, again, like how this ish, how quickly this issue is evolving. Uh, some of it's a function of the fact that these vaccines are so effective right now, the mRNA vaccines are so effective that people are saying, look, I really want that. lot <laughs> of You're right. P- people a lot of people enroll in the trials for one of two reasons, right? Like they want really early access. They want to try to get protection. And some people just want to contribute to science, right? But there's a lot of people who said, I- I'd like to have a first shot at that. And so once it, you know, it's it's really hard for that group definitely to continue to go for a long time. If they, especially when they find out they might have placebo to just keep going <laughs> right there. Right. They were obviously the people who said, I'll sign up for a trial because I'm I'm hoping to to get an early shot at that vaccine and that protection because maybe they're a high risk population, right? So, so those are kind of the issues with, with the, um, with the crossover, the six month, the uh, BLA EUA issues.
0: Yeah, um, and just real briefly, you, you mentioned BLA. Could you just define what BLA is real quickly?
1: That's a biological biologics license application. So okay. again, that's considered a full approval. Um, if you were a pharmaceutical, you get an NDA, a new drug application. Okay. So, yeah. So again, typically there's something called a EUA emergency use authorization in in times where you really need a treatment. That's kind of like a, like, let's just take a shot at it. So usually um, a lot of drugs that have been coming out for COVID um, have come under the EUA. But again, typically it's like, we don't have any drugs. This person is in the hospital, right? right? This is our best shot. Like, you know, we should give them a try, even if it hasn't been fully vetted, but you know, there's, there's a, preponderance of evidence that it could help right so we're not totally sure that it works but it's you know it could help so eua is sort of that uh level of evidence so right now the current vaccines are under that level of evidence but to have the full approval that says that this definitely works has you know substantial benefit and doesn't have harms um you would require a bla gotcha
0: okay thanks and then alfredo you were going to say something there as well Um,
2: Yes, just as a wrap-up comment to this question, um, time keeps moving in favor of the trial. Uh, It's still blinded and we're now close to four months uh, after um, uh, it finished enrollment. So two more months, even though there are plans to unblind, it seems very likely that we are going to get the data and uh, the issue will become essentially moot. Um, Although I don't imagine that uh, by the summer, the trial would still continue as blinded.
0: Right. So, you know, our staff asked a lot of questions about the accelerated timeline for the development of you know these two and the, some of the other COVID vaccines that are still going through their their you know their first round of trials before the EUA. And it is really astounding that these vaccines were developed in less than a year in in most cases uh, or in all the cases, I guess. Uh, you know, when previous vaccines have taken years and and more than a decade to get to this point. So should we be concerned about how quickly these vaccines were developed with regard to either safety or effectiveness?
1: Um, Some of the concerns are, uh, again, because it's been so quick, um, you know, there's definitely been a Herculean effort by Operation Warp Speed to bring these drugs to market, or the vaccines to market, um, you know, there's a number of reasons to believe that, you know, there weren't, uh, a lot like safety and efficacy shortcuts, um, you know, typically, so Johns Hopkins, uh, refers to the fact that, you know, it, it would maybe be a legitimate timeline would be five to 10 years in like sort of the old way of doing trials. But what operation warp speed did was they, um, overlapped a number of trials so usually you have to run a phase one that's just a safety and then a phase two is more safety and some efficacy on the second half of that and then phase three um, is really your efficacy your your uh, you know two-arm trial against placebo or something else and most pharmaceutical companies what they do because of financial risk is they don't overlap all of those trials that much right like they'll take it step by step And so by overlapping them, you know, that's a relatively, once, you know, the phase one safety goes far enough in a pilot study, they can start the phase two. And then they also roll those phase two patients who get the vaccine. They just start adding more patients into the phase three. So it's kind of like these rolling trials, uh, the waterfall trials. And so, you know, that's just, uh, Sort of innovation in clinical trial design. It's not really shortcuts. It's it is a way to accelerate it, but again, it, it requires substantial um, financial investment, and without. The government's financial assistance in operation warp speed to help them sort of de-risk that a drug company usually would take it much slower because they just don't want to throw that much money into a vaccine that doesn't work sort of like the government's help help them just say look we're just going to go as fast as we can to enroll patients and testees without taking it step by step and worrying about how much money we lose and then they also on the other side of operation warp speed Gave the uh, manufacturers money to make manufacturing, right? So they started to scale up manufacturing while they're doing clinical trials, which again is is not common. They would usually say, "Does this work?" They'd get pretty solid phase three data. Then they would start to make, um, you know, scale up their manufacturing before before the total trial ended. But you know, they would start to make manufacturing somewhere in that phase three, probably. And uh, in this case, they were making manufacturing capacity immediately like as soon as they had like a, a vaccine candidate even almost before they were putting it in people right they were almost putting it in monkeys and they were starting to say how are we gonna how are we gonna scale this up if it works so that's um things that are not necessarily safety shortcuts they're financial based shortcuts so so uh in, in those kind of concerns i wouldn't you know that they definitely did everything they could to bring these to market as soon as possible
0: and the thinking there being right with the government backing that risk if i've got a vaccine candidate that it turns out at any one of those phases is not going to work but i've already made you know a, a half a zillion doses of this the government is absorbing the financial loss yes i have to throw them out but it's not going to put my company out of business
1: right yeah right. exactly yeah. exactly and and so i mean i think that that's a little bit of the problem that they're running into now though too is that the government kind of like hedge their bets, right? And a a lot of the manufacturers who are far ahead they bought like 100 million doses from multiple companies and so now you sort of have the Pfizer and Moderna who have come to the forefront and people are kind of saying well why did not we buy you know 300 billion or 600 million of those but it was like well we didn't know right who was gonna you know who was gonna be you know sort of come come to the forefront first so it was like well I'll give you some money I'll give you so there was still a little bit of diversification of risk <laughs> there to move everybody forward because nobody really knew what was going to work. And just for instance, like this morning, you know, there was a report from Merck who's decided to drop out of the vaccine race because their vaccine doesn't work as good as uh, natural infection or the other, um, the other vaccines. So for instance, like you just didn't know who was going to, you know, who was going to come to the forefront. Um, so that still has to play out for, for a number of these vaccines, like how safe and effective they're going to be.
2: Mm, Paul, I wanted to quickly circle back to the, the quality of the trial uh, just for a little mm-hmm. bit before we move to the next question. Uh, just to restate that the the, the time saving with Operation Warsfield Speed Trial was, as uh, Marcus detailed, the, the financial involvement, the regulatory process itself, but it was really not the study design. The study design is extremely robust. Really, it was uh, an incredible endeavor that that, uh, Moderna and Pfizer did. Uh, It's one of the biggest uh, and more detailed trials that I have ever seen in uh, my years of of clinical evidence assessment. Um, So we can be confident that the data that we have is very high quality. Uh, The issue though, is with the data that we do not have. So uh, (laughs) FDA went uh, and released the, the vaccines out, rolled out the vaccines. Uh, With just two-month average follow-up data, there is still the question, how long are we going to keep, how long is the vaccine going to protect you, is that immunity going to wane? It is a possibility. Uh, The preliminary data that is available from um, the phase one and two studies were much, much smaller. Uh, suggest that yes, the immunity might last for six months to a year, but it would have been great to have that certainty.
0: And that's the kind of thing that we will only gather with time, right? You can't you can't accelerate that piece of it that only comes with time.
2: Yes, uh, unfortunately it does. And yeah. we will get some manner of an answer, of course. Uh, as time goes by, it's just sure. it will be much more difficult to get it.
0: So finally, I wanted to talk about how the virus is changing. Um, Late in 2020, there was a lot of news uh, coverage about a variant of the virus that we think originated in the UK and made it more contagious, but at the time we thought maybe it doesn't make the effects more severe. The last time I checked, the current understanding is that these mutations aren't expected to affect vaccine effectiveness, but I could be out of date. So um, is that still our understanding? And what else do we know about some of these variations that have been detected since since you know, say, again, late late 2020?
2: Um, well, the issue with uh, mutations, they are a normal part of the uh, evolution of the virus and coronaviruses are, hap- I, are rapidly mutating viruses, not as much as for example, the influenza viruses, but still um, quite significant. And um, the mutations can affect the way uh, um, an antibody interacts with the virus, with the spike protein, which is the target of the vaccines here. And um, over time, they might eventually reduce the the effectiveness. However, it's important to know that this is not a one-step process. So you get immunized with Uh, the entire spike protein mutations are going to occur at different sites Uh, and uh, the rest of the protein is going to still be the same and still available so that the immune system can can produce antibodies against them. So it's very unlikely that a single mutation is going to make the protein so different that you cannot recognize it anymore. Uh, However, over time, the mutations do accumulate and at some point Uh, the vaccine might not be representative enough of the whole protein, of the new protein, the mutated one, that you can produce effective antibodies. So uh, regarding the specific mutations that are now uh, being discussed, uh, the UK mutation and the South um, Africa mutation, uh, the preliminary in vitro data shows that the vaccines are still effective. Uh, there is some reduction uh, on the immunogenicity of uh, the UK, the response to the, U, uh, the UK strain, but it's still um, on a safe level. The, the um, interaction between the antibodies in people who received the vaccine and the virus, it's still strong enough that the vaccine should protect you. However, uh, time is not working on our side. Uh, The the viruses will keep mutation as time goes by. So it's very important that we get the epidemic under control as quickly as possible. And that's why it's also very important. And even as the vaccine gets distributed and even if you get the vaccine, uh, that we maintain the social distancing, uh, the use of masks and PPE, travel restrictions, all other measures that can help uh, keep control of the virus and that can make the vaccine even more effective.
1: Yeah, and and something I just kind of wanted to add to that is, again, with just sort of the, the biology of, like, why do mutations happen? And you know, coronavirus has an RNA genome, like it's genetic material that encodes the virus is RNA. And basically the machinery that makes RNA is more error prone than the machinery that makes DNA, right? So when like we have a DNA genome and when we replicate ourselves, we have a lot of sort of spell check or whatever, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) ever proofing machinery that if there's a mistake, it gets fixed and stuff so that we don't, Harbor a lot of mutations, and essentially, that's you know, a lot of times how cancer and things like that happen is when the you know the spell check doesn't work right. So, um, you know, when you make an RNA genome, there isn't as much of that uh, error proofing, and so you just have that gradual mistakes. You have these gradual changes that, again, eventually in the right spot can lead to you know vaccines not working or your immune response not remembering it. Um, there's also the possibility of like. they call recombination so if that rna gets close enough to another rna like you know a different animal or you know or something like that different animal coronavirus then they can kind of have a like a crossover of dna and like recombine the dna so that's a way that uh people believe that you know like sars-cov came about was there was a recombination event that made it different that's why they said well this is something we haven't really seen before Mm -hmm. um Influenza, you know, the the issue with influenza, a lot of people make the parallels of like, well, you know, we're gonna get mistake, you know, we're gonna get these mutations as quickly as influenza, we need an influenza vaccine every year. But influenza has a different genome, like uh, coronavirus has a single genome, like one strand. And the way that influenza is, is it actually has multiple pieces that are strung together with proteins. And every time they replicate, like they assort them, they kind of say, well, you know, your number, you know, part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then it has to, you know, it kind of shuttles them. And it's much easier for those pieces to get swapped. Like if you have a avian influenza and you have a pig influenza in the same cell, when the cell divvies them up, it's much more. Uh, you know, it's kind of like doling out candy at Halloween, right? So it's much more likely to like reassort them with influenza, whereas uh, with coronavirus, it either needs to be those gradual mutations or like a crossover. So, you know, so sometimes just theoretically when people say, is it going to be as, are we going to need a new vaccine as often as as influenza? You know, maybe not, Um, but we do have to continue to monitor Mutations, because we know that th- it's definitely bound to mutate because of because of the RNA um, being error prone, like RNA just machinery. So, um, so again, like yeah, we have to try to get on top of these as, as quick as possible and continue to like monitor them with surveillance. Uh, those are all important strategies to to kind of for public health.
2: Mm, a, a little piece of good news, though, is that mRNA vaccines are very easy to alter and adjust so that they can match a new strain. That is one of the powerful Mm. uh, features of this mRNA technology, as opposed to the classic way of doing vaccines. And uh, Moderna is already uh, start uh, planning to test booster design for the UK strain.
0: Nice. Yeah. And, and I could just say, Marcus, as an editor with a sweet tooth, I I always appreciate <laughs> an analogies that have to do with spell check and Halloween candy. You hit me right right, right in my wheelhouse there. Um, you know, we always, so we always try to wrap up with some quick steps that our listeners can take to get started making care safer. And usually, that's around implementing some program in a healthcare provider organization. But this is a little bit of a different topic, so I, I think I'll ask it this way. Can each of you give maybe your bottom line takeaway with regard to the COVID vaccine? What's something that we should really be looking to as we make decisions for ourselves and and for our families?
2: Um, Yes, Paul. Um, I would say that it's important to keep in mind that the the trials, as they have been conducted, are high quality. Uh, However, some evident gaps remain. Uh, this should not be a deterrent for people getting the vaccine. Once it's made available to you, uh, I think that it's perfectly reasonable to consider what your, at your individual level, your potential benefits and what's the potential risk to you. Balance them out uh, when you decide whether you're going to get the vaccine or not. Uh, for instance, if you have someone at home who is. Uh, elderly or frail, and uh, you're worried about them, then it makes sense that you get the vaccine earlier, rather than later. If on the other hand, you work from home, you don't have a lot of uh, social contact, and you, it would make you feel safer to wait out a little bit um, <clears throat> until we have more data on long-term effectiveness, for example, then that could be okay as well. Um, consider your own benefit-risk profile, uh, when, when you make your decision. And uh, also, no matter what, I think it's important to restress again that we are not safe until we are safe. So the vaccine is not a panacea and it's not a magic bullet. Uh, it's important that we keep with everything else we're doing uh, to help control the epidemic, uh, even as the vaccine gets distributed. Uh, and even after you take the the, the vaccine yourself, uh, we, we know, for example, that the vaccine will prevent disease, but the trials were not designed to test, for example, if uh, the vaccines can prevent you from getting asymptomatic disease and from being an asymptomatic carrier and infecting others. So keeping up with uh, social distancing, PPE use, travel restrictions, it's been a year, we're all exhausted, but that is precisely the more reason to keep going right until the end. Because otherwise, if we ever have to go back to square one, I don't want to even imagine (laughs) that.
1: Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I I think um, from my perspective, uh, working in horizon scanning, so we're, you know, we tend to look um, out like a year, you know, how is this landscape going to look in a year? Right now, there's two vaccines with EUA. Again, like full approval might be coming. Um, but like I mentioned earlier that there are, uh, you know, the, the the government has kind of um, divvied up its portfolio. And so there are other vaccines that are going to come on the market. So, um, you know, continue to keep up with those data, hopefully, in developments, just kind of keep an ear to the ground. I know not everybody's comfortable reading like clinical data and stuff, but you know, continue to look at trusted sources like ECRI and c d c um you know about some of these developments, whether or not they're gonna be as effective as the two that are available I mean, that's kind of what I'm referring to is are they gonna be as effective? are they gonna have different safety concerns um you know, that's kind of unknown. And so we need to wait for that data to unfold. And, but again, by the end of the year, it's, it's quite possible that there could be like five different vaccines that could be uh, on the market to, you know, in order to get, you know, as many of the 330 million people in America vaccinated, right. There might be five different potential options by this time next year. So we have to be careful to try to limit the spread of infection and, um, and just, uh, Again, keep up with with the recommendations.
0: Marcus Alfredo, thanks so much for your time and, and for sharing these insights.
1: Uh, thanks, Paul. We really enjoyed being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting us. Yes, thank you
2: very much for having us today, Paul.
0: You can find more publicly available resources for responding to the pandemic in ECRI's COVID nineteen Resource Center. And members of all of ECRI services can find additional members-only resources on our healthcare recovery center. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get these latest episodes. And we welcome your feedback. Again, visit us at ECRI.org, or you can email us at ECRI-podcasts at ECRI.org.